Today's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is the beginning portion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And that this sermon was given upon a mountain, you already know what I'm going to say, is not arbitrary. If you get one thing in your time in this church, is to recognize the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God given to us in Holy Scripture, that in a hundred lifetimes with a perfect purity of soul and an IQ of 250, you could never plumb the riches that we find in the Word of God. So that Jesus is upon a mountain is not just, well, okay, this is a good place. They've got a Wawa right here. We can get something to drink after church. No, mountains are places where heaven and earth touch. In a literal way, mountains pierce the sky. They are on earth and of the earth and at the same time in the heavens. Mountains are where temples are built and a temple is a place where heaven and earth overlap. Just think back through the Old and New Testaments of all the places in Scripture Of all the mountains in Scripture where, quote John Donne, there is a commerce betwixt heaven and earth. Eden, Ararat, upon which the ark rested, Moriah, where the would-be sacrifice of Isaac took place, Sinai. Both the setting of the sermon and its content are reminiscent of, in dialogue with, in fulfillment of the giving of the law of Moses at Sinai. For Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and following corrects many misunderstandings of the law. He makes it plain, as the prophet Micah did, that God is after the transformation of the entire person. One of the biggest heresies in the church today is what I would call neo-Marcionism. That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament have nothing to do with one another. That under the law, it was all about what you do, and then under Christ, what you do just doesn't even matter because of grace, and it's just about the heart. It's always been about both. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus gets at this, and he issues to us the law law of liberty, as James calls it. The law of Christ, which is written not on stone tablets, but on our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. Again, verse 1, he went up on a mountain... And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Jesus' posture that he was seated is not, say it with me, arbitrary. No one said it with me. Like youth group, we just start over if you don't participate. In the late 90s, early 2000s, it became a thing that in lieu of a pulpit, preachers would start, uh, they would bring out a table from Ikea usually. Uh, Ikea has made a lot of money off churches. uh, And 
guilty as charged, uh, and a stool, and they, and they would sit down, you know, uh, ostensibly to be, I don't know, more personal, uh, relatable, perhaps cooler, hip. That's not what's going on in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in first century Israel, being seated while teaching denoted authority. And in fact, some early Christian preachers, uh, like St. John Chrysostom, he adopted this practice and would sit while giving the sermon. Uh, there is also, in connection with this idea that being seated equals authority, a regal overtone. Kings sit. What do we profess in the creeds? That Christ has been exalted and is now what? Seated at the right hand of the Father. To what? To rule heaven and earth. That's not Jesus taking a break after he did a lot of stuff down here. Well, I'm going to sit for a while. I'm tired. It's him taking up his throne to rule heaven and earth. Jesus begins his sermon with nine blessings. The Beatitudes, as they're called, which are both announcements and exhortations. That's key. They're both announcements and exhortations. So yes, as St. Augustine said, in the Sermon of Mount we receive the perfect standard of the Christian life. He is telling us how citizens of the kingdom of heaven ought to live, how we can cultivate that, the abundant life, how we can cultivate the life of the age to come here and now. But he's also announcing something that is happening at present, that through his own person and work, the blessing of God is being poured out upon Israel and the world. He's announcing that the blessing promised to Abraham, that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that it has arrived in and through his own person. So the Beatitudes are both indicatives and imperatives. They are good news that blessing is poured out and that blessing is promised at the end of the age. And they are instructions on how to enter into that blessing. So keeping that in mind, let's look at a few of the Beatitudes. Jesus begins, the first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why is that his intro? Jesus begins his sermon this way in order to connect his own person and work with an overtly messianic passage found in Isaiah 61. In other words, what Isaiah foretold is now being fulfilled. And, and this is not my Father Matt's pet theory. Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry, reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue at Nazareth, and having read it, he says, while sitting, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
And here it is, Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus was, was anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah at his baptism. He was proclaimed as God's eternal Son, revealed to be such, and he begins his ministry by bringing good news to the poor. The materially poor, which is some of us, and to the spiritually poor, which is all of us. That in and through him, he announces that blessing and salvation have come to the world. It has arrived. It is an announcement, then, that the Savior, that the Rescuer, is here. It is good news. It is gospel that Jesus, the Messiah foretold by the prophet Isaiah, is now bringing the riches of the kingdom of heaven to earth. It is an announcement to the materially poor that in Jesus they are rich. You're blessed because you will be inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. James, in his epistle, drawing on the Sermon of the Mount, we can see this in, in chapter 2 of the epistle of St. James, he challenges those who would show partiality to the rich. Remember what's going on there? Oh, someone poor comes in, you're weird, you don't have nice clothes, you stink, you can kind of sit in the back or on the floor. Oh, you're somebody, Here's the, here are the box seats for you. And this is what James says, he says, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So Jesus, in that this is an announcement, is bringing good news to the poor. He is also, and this is where it's an exhortation, he's commanding his followers to be poor in spirit. And we do take that at one level how we use it in contemporary English. Well, sorry I can't be at your birthday party, but I'll be there in spirit. So you may not be poor, you, you may be rich, but you need to live as though you're poor. That is dependent on God and detached from worldly goods. We need to make sure that our possessions are just that, possessions. That we possess them and that they don't possess us. We are to be rather humble, which is impossible for us to be poor in spirit, to be humble, if we trust in horses and chariots. Obviously, we have to spiritualize that because none of us have horses or chariots. Maybe we do. But wealth. So this is also an exhortation to believers to take up the foundational Christian virtue of humility. So reading this in that way, it makes excellent sense at another level of interpretation, why Jesus leads with this. Because as pride is at the root of sin, so is humility at the root of sanctification. St. John Chrysostom writes this on humility in the Beatitudes. He says, For as pride is the fountain of all wickedness, 
So is humility the principle of all self-command. Wherefore also he begins with this, that is, blessed are the poor in spirit, pulling up boasting by the very root out of the soul of his hearers. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus, the Messiah, brings comfort. The Sermon on the Mount continues to track with Isaiah 61. Go read it later. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And then verse 2, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Blessed are those who mourn. This is an announcement and a promise. It is good news which gives comfort for the one who forgives sinners, the one who vanquishes the devil, the one who abolishes death has arrived. It is a promise in that those in Christ who mourn have the promise of blessing at the end of the age. That when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, he will right all wrongs. He will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his children. We have a sure hope. And in that, we find comfort. And for those who mourn, there is blessing now. For God is near to the brokenhearted. In our pain, God is not distant. For Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And he has said, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in the flesh, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And we have been given the Holy Spirit, who is called the Comforter, who dwells in us. Blessed are those who mourn. You could translate blessed as, as happy. Happy and satisfied are those who mourn. Now, now this makes sense as an indicative that those who mourn, that, that the blessing of God is coming to you, that the blessing of God, his, his very life, His grace will comfort you, makes sense as an indicative. But as an imperative? Is the Lord Jesus calling us to mourn? I thought, per St. Paul, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. How do we understand this? Can we understand it as a commandment? Well, I'll answer that question with another question. Was the prodigal son happy 
was he blessed while he was away from his father's house? No, he had to go home. And the road that he traveled home is called repentance. That's in the Hebrew, the meaning of the word, it's leaving one path and going down another. And repentance is the prerequisite for joy because true blessedness is only possible through mourning. Mourning the sin in the world, in the church, and first and foremost in our own lives. You see, the Christian life is a life of conversion and repentance, of progressively being delivered from the grip of sin and receiving the oft-needed comfort and blessing of forgiveness. And the beatitude, I think we take this for granted, read as an imperative, is not bad news, but good news. Because those who mourn, those who turn from sin and wickedness and from their narcissism to the Lord Jesus Christ, will be comforted. There are, God the Father does not put blockades on the road to repentance. He, those who mourn will be comforted. The Father's arms are open wide always to receive you back. And this is embedded into the liturgy. The Holy Eucharist is a comfort to the penitent. It brings healing and restoration to our souls. The absolution, the longer one and right one, this is good news. What does it say? You'll hear it in a moment, but I'll read it to you now. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of His great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty faith and true, with hearty repentance and true faith, turn unto him, have mercy upon you. We'll skip to the last two blessings. They have to do with persecution. There is a blessing for those who endure suffering for Jesus' name. James 1, again drawing on the Sermon on the Mount, he writes, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. That is, blessed is the man that endures trial. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. There is blessedness Happiness for those in Christ who suffer for Christ in the age to come. There's a particular place of honors, honor especially for the martyrs. And maybe we feel like we can't relate to that, and we, we probably can't. But I think we can relate to when Jesus is talking about uh, Christians who will be slandered. because of my name. If you haven't experienced that, 
If you continue to follow Jesus and the climate stays the way that it is, you will. You will. Because as we heard in the epistle, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And how to navigate that. How that we as Christians not turn in a bunch of mad, arrogant uh, Pharisees, but to be humble, happy, happy warriors as we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But there is a particular uh, blessing and, and crown for those who, who pay the ultimate price for following Jesus Christ and uh, being baptized in their own blood through martyrdom. As our Lord says, if we are slandered, if we are persecuted, we should rejoice because great is our reward in heaven. But like those who mourn, those who suffer for Christ have blessing now. In the midst of suffering, of persecution, the blessing of God's presence is available. Have you ever had the opportunity to meet well, I know you all have, uh, <laughs> a person perhaps that ministers in another country where Christianity is frowned upon, if not illegal. We had Bishop Patrick Augustine with us, and he ministering in the South Sudan. Very dangerous, very hostile to the things of God. I mean, the guy planted a church in Islamabad, Pakistan, earlier in his ministry. If you had an opportunity to meet some of these, hero these living heroes of the faith, do they have less joy than you or more? There's a blessedness that they walk in. And we even see this in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, you know, the Sanhedrin, you know, Jesus came into his own and they did not receive him. His own people rejected him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews, they don't repent after Jesus resurrected and be like, no, they keep going and they do to the apostles what they did to the Lord, which Jesus told them, like, yeah, they're going to do to you what they did to me. Like, just get ready. He didn't say it as, as valley guyish and contemporary as I just said it. But, you know, you get what I'm trying to say, hopefully. So Peter and the apostles, because in Acts 4, they're like, they're like, you guys need to shut up about Jesus. And they're saying, no, we won't. It's better to obey God than man. It comes down to obeying human authorities. If I have to obey a human authority and the result is that I would then disobey God, sorry, God wins, not doing it. And they're saying it's not even a choice because we can't even help but speak the name of Jesus and all that he's done and who he is. So they end up getting beaten. I mean, physically, corporal punishment by the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 5, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted 
worthy to suffer shame for his name. I'll close with this. St. Augustine writes, Anyone who piously and earnestly ponders the Sermon on the Mount as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe he will find therein the perfect standard of the Christian life. Matthew 5 and following are one of those passages that we need to put in the crock pot of our souls and stew on it and reflect upon it and pray through it, like not for a few weeks, but forever, as long as we're on this earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, we find good news that in and through Jesus Christ, we are blessed. Are we going to live in such a way, are we going to pray in such a way that reflects faith in Jesus? Are we going to live as if all this is true, as if God keeps his promises, as if the Holy Spirit does indeed dwell within in us? This is good news. Our Lord has stood in our midst and said, blessing is coming to you. And this good news is at the same time, God's law, the law of Christ, which again has been written on our hearts by the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, let us cooperate with the grace that has been given to us. Not to grieve or to quench the Holy Spirit, but to walk in the Spirit and cultivate the life of the kingdom, seeking these nine blessings that we may be happy and satisfied and blessed, not only in the age to come, but in this present age in which we walk and journey and live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.